We welcome all of you who are joining us online and also those of you here at um, Central Campus along with those who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also at our Bearspaw campus. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or Bible apps to Romans chapter 10. And if you weren't able to take in the uh, first the two messages in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to encourage you to do so. Just go to our website, look under sermons, uh, because Romans 10 that we're looking at today builds on Romans chapter 9. But before we get into our study, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in dedicating our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness And Lord, for your greatness, for the fact that you continue to change lives. And Lord, I pray that as we now get into your word, Lord, that you would give us insight into what you are saying and particularly what you are saying to us. And Lord, that you would give us uh, the will, you give us the courage to step out and to be the person that you created us to be and to do the things that you've called us to do. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, over the years I have observed that there are two words in the Christian vocabulary that uh, do not sit well with people in our culture. And the first one is the word lost. People hate being lost or being told that they are lost. I can still recall years ago getting lost on our way to visit someone, which was a regular occurrence back then. And after several attempts on my part, as most men will do, uh, to try to find uh, the location, Gwen gave me that look. And you all know, guys, what that look says. It says, honey, face it. We are hopelessly lost. Will you please pull over and ask for directions. Let me tell you, getting lost on the road was a real stressor in our marriage. But thankfully, the day came when I was saved by Google Maps and particularly (laughs) saved by Siri, uh, who I really have come to appreciate because she gives you not only step-by-step instructions to your destination, but she's so patient. (laughs) She's so understanding. You know, when you mess up. So thanks to Siri, there is now peace in our marriage. (laughs) Although more recently, I've noticed that Gwen's really on edge when I drive. I don't know why. I asked her why. She's so jumpy. You know why she's always grabbing the dash all the time. And she said, my driving makes her nervous. I was kind of hurt by that. Thought her comment was totally uncalled for. Until this past week, I was late for a meeting and bit of a hurry. And Siri said something that made me think that maybe Gwen was right. She said, in 400 meters, please stop and let me out. (laughs) Siri had never said that before. Man. Okay. Now, I've totally lost you in terms of where I was going, right? So let's get back to the point. We don't like getting lost. But even more so, we don't like being referred to as being lost. Particularly those in our culture don't like that. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said, He came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. People hate being referred to as spiritually lost. Because to them, it smacks of being weak. It it smacks of being helpless or hopelessly confused. And yet in this context, the word lost implies value. If you search for something, that in itself communicates that what you're searching for is valuable to you. I mean, drop a penny, these days a nickel, and you probably won't even stop to pick it up. But lose $100, and you will spend a lot more time searching for that $100 bill. But lose a child, 
And I don't need to tell you, you won't rest, you won't eat. You won't know the meaning of true peace until that child is found. You see, searching for something that is lost says it's valuable. Now, it's closely related, a closely related word that makes people in our society feel uncomfortable is the word saved. Many people cringe when they see the words, are you saved, splattered on a billboard. Or someone approaches them on the street and asks, are you saved? Pastor Ray Stedman tells of a time a man came up to him at a, me- in a, at a movie theater and he pointed to an imp- empty seat next to him and he asked, um, is this seat saved? And Stedman says, you know, I don't know what came over me, but I said, no, it's not saved, but I am. He said the fellow gave him the strangest look, slowly turned around and found a seat elsewhere. (laughs) Many people don't like the words lost or saved, but you can't avoid them in Scripture. And they're in the passage we're looking at today. Christians talk about men and women needing to be saved because the New Testament Scriptures clearly teach that without faith in Christ Jesus, We're lost. We're forever separated from God in hell. Now, people ask me, how could a loving God send people to hell? My short answer to that is simply this. He doesn't. 2 Peter 3.9 reveals the heart of our Lord in this regard. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And that is why he made a way through the costly death of his son Jesus Christ for us to be saved from hell. When we ignore Christ, when we reject Christ or replace Christ with some other counterfeit God, we are saying we don't believe in Jesus, that we don't want him part of our lives. We're saying that we don't want him messing with our lives, and in so doing, we will get exactly what we want, an eternity without Christ. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. And so make no mistake, saved is a perfectly legitimate word to use. Now here in chapter 10, Paul is heartbroken for his people, the Israelites. Because even though they were chosen by God to be his representatives in the world, they didn't even know God. They were trusting in all the wrong things to be saved. And that's why in verse 1 and 2, Paul writes this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul says... The Israelites are zealous, but they're zealous in the wrong things. They were zealous not for God and his saving grace. No, they were zealous about keeping the law, which for those of you who are new, is best understood as the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, righteousness means rightness. It means to be right with God. And Paul writes here, the Israelites refused to submit to Christ and to accept that the way to get right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. They just flat out refused to embrace that truth. In verse 18 to 20, Paul essentially says that even though King David and Moses and Isaiah indicated that no one can perfectly 
keep the laws and that we need a savior, many of his fellow Jews wouldn't listen. Instead, they tried to establish their own religion. In other words, their own way that they believed would make them acceptable to God. Now, you know, a lot of people today make the same mistake. They not only make up the kind of God that they believe in, you know, the kind of God they want to believe in, the one that's kind of acceptable to them, they not only do that, but they also make up their own way that they believe will make them acceptable to God. In other words, they sort of set up all the rules the way they want. Like the Jews in Paul's day, they believe if you really strive to be good and to do good, well, you're going to be acceptable to God. Now, some people are honest enough to admit that they aren't perfect. In fact, far from it. In fact, some will humbly say to me, Pastor, I've, I've blown it so bad, I don't think God can ever forgive me. I, I've, I've just gone too far. And I love talking to these people because they've come to a place of genuine brokenness and humility, a place of realizing that they just simply can't fix it themselves. They can't save themselves. And it's a joy for me to be able to share the good news of God's grace with them. But I'm finding more people I talk to these days, they don't think that way. They don't believe that they're spiritually lost. They don't believe they're sinners in need of a savior. No, they think that they're actually pretty good and righteous and therefore they're acceptable to God. And the way that people come to this place is by comparing their perceived goodness with the lack of goodness in other people. The diagram on the screen may help you picture how a person might do this. <coughs> it's pretty subtle. But a person begins by identifying the dregs of society, those they believe are the moral lowlife of our world. You know, the murderers, the drug kingpins, the, the sex traffickers and, and the sexual predators and abusers, to name just a few. If 10 represents the God's perfect righteousness, then these people would be on the bottom rung. They would, be, they would rate as one. And most people would say that these people are not only destined for hell, but that they deserve to go to hell. But then we remind ourselves of people at work, at school, in our neighborhood, who are incredibly selfish, who sleep around, who lie and cheat without batting an eyelash. We think about those who run roughshod over people to, to get a promotion or just to look good in the eyes of their boss. And we look at our scale and we rate people like that as a five. You know, morally average people. And the next step goes like this. I mean, if, really, if the really sadistic evil people are one and the moral degenerates are five, well, then we reason, it makes sense that I'm at least a 7.5. And then you start tallying up all the long list of admirable qualities you possess. You know, the good things that you're doing, which you believe, you know, raises your score even higher. You say to yourself, you know, I'm kind to most people. You know, I'm mostly, I mostly keep my word. I'm faithful to my spouse. I support the United Way. I buy Girl Scout cookies. Surely. That must move me up to at least an 8.5. And come to think of it, you say to yourself, I go to church in small group when I can fit them in. I read the Bible, I pray, I give occasionally. I serve in the church nursery once a month, which should be worth a full point all in itself. I mean, I'm pretty religious. And you add it all up, and you discover that compared to most people on the planet, I mean, you're a 
maybe even a 9.7 out of 10. And you figure, that's got to be good enough for God. It just has to be. I mean, would God make an issue over three-tenths of 1%? Now, church, this way of thinking permeated the Jewish people in Paul's day. And it is widespread in our culture today. Which is why people are absolutely confounded and incensed when Christians tell them that they need a Savior. I mean, who needs Christ's righteousness when my own righteousness is plenty? I mean, it's at least 9.7%. But here's the thing. God isn't measuring our goodness in relation to other people. No, he's measuring our righteousness in comparison to the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. For example, take the water in this glass that's right here next to me. If you were up here, you would see that that water is crystal clear. I'd have no hesitation drinking that water, and neither would you. But put a single drop of water under a microscope, and you will see dirt, sediment, germs, living creatures of all kinds, and many other things that you'd rather not think about. All those contaminants in just a single drop of what appeared to be, or appears to be, crystal clear water. Now multiply that by all the drops in a single glass of water, and you may never want to drink water again. But my point is the glass of water is not as pure as you think it is. Now a day is coming when God is going to put our lives under a spiritual microscope, as it were. Every impure thought, every devious plan, every sin, all that will be magnified and exposed. And it will become painfully aware and obvious to us, but also to God, that we are far from scoring in the high nines. That's a picture of our own righteousness. And the Bible affirms this saying that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory or the righteousness of God. In other words, on our own, we will never muster up enough personal righteousness to make ourselves acceptable to the standards of a holy God. We can't save ourselves. You see, one of the things we have to understand is that heaven is a perfect place, and it's perfect because God will be resonant there and is resident there. And only perfect people can therefore go there. Let me repeat that. Heaven is a perfect place. And only perfect people go there. And folks, we've just determined that we're not perfect. Even at 9.7, we're not perfect. Well, God knew that. He knew we had a problem and didn't have an answer for that problem. And so in the fullness of time, he sent his son Jesus to come to earth, God in human flesh, to live perfectly among people and then to die on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus willingly took your place and my place of punishment and he paid for our spiritual crimes with his own blood. While Jesus was dying on the cross, in the eternal spirit realm, God arranged for the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine, to be transferred from our account to his account. And at the same time, God transferred the perfect righteousness of Christ to our account, making us clean, pure, righteous, and yes, perfect in the sight of God in the eternal realm. The earthly realm, we're still growing. 
I'm talking about our position in Christ in the eternal realm. Make no mistake, what God did through Christ was incredibly costly. But we can receive his amazing grace as a free gift by putting our trust in Jesus and his righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it this way, for it is by grace, by what God has done in Christ, you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. In other words, born again, saved in Christ for a purpose. What is that purpose? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul essentially says here, you don't do good works to get to heaven. No, you do good works because you're already saved and you're on your way to heaven. And that changes everything. You serve, and, you serve the Lord and you serve others because you love Jesus and all that he's done for you because you want to, not because you have to, to appease God in, in order to get eternal life. Now in verse 4, Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul wasn't saying that Christ does away with all forms of the law like the Ten Commandments. No, the word end means completion, maturity, fulfillment. The part of the law that Christ ended was the belief that keeping the law is the way to be right with God. That's what Christ brought to an end. See, the law was given by God to help us realize we have attitudes and we have behaviors that are not only destroying us, but separating us from God. The law is like a mirror. You look in the mirror and you see that you've got a smudge on your face. The mirror won't help you to clean off that smudge. It just shows you that you've got a problem on your face and you need a solution. In the same way, the law in itself, the Ten Commandments, for example, can only show us that we have a destructive sin problem, but they can't save us from our sin. Look at verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, this is a very sobering verse, actually, because what's being said is, is that if you actually believe that you can be saved on the basis of how moral you are in comparison to other people uh, or on the basis of your legalism and ability to keep the law, then the law becomes your standard. And unless you keep every point of the law perfectly every day of your life, you're going to come up short. It's all or nothing when it comes to the law, if that's what you're trusting in to, to, to uh, meet God's standards. And of course, we all know that we have sinned. And so we need a Savior. We need the righteousness of God provided for us in Christ Jesus. It is Christ, friends, who can change you from the inside out. He can give you a new life. He really can. He can wipe out the old pattern of selfishness. He can bring healing to all the hurt and the anguish you have been going through and give you a new heart and a new start. Now in verse 5 to 8, Paul quotes both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, a couple of Old Testament books written by Moses. And it reads like this. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into the heaven 
that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, if you found those verses confusing to understand, don't feel bad. Because they are confusing for us to understand today. But they were not confusing for the Jew who heard them in Jesus' day or in Paul's day. And what Paul is saying is that salvation by grace through faith is already available. You don't have to go to heaven and try to bring Christ down because that's already happened. It's called the incarnation. You don't have to go to the abyss or to the grave and try to raise Christ up because that's already happened. It's called the resurrection. These verses are Paul's way of saying the work's already been done. Everything you need to be saved is already available in Christ Jesus. Just before Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. In the Greek, this phrase is one word, and it's a legal term that, is often, that was often stamped on documents that, that basically meant paid in full. In the same way, Jesus paid for our sins once for all on the cross. And you see, that's the difference between Christianity and the Jewish faith. In fact, that's the difference between Christianity and all faiths, all other religions. Every other religion is based on the word do. Do this, don't do that, and the people in these religions believe this will satisfy God. Christianity is based on the word done. It's already done by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is finished. It is paid in full. Now, of course, we don't deserve it. I mean, we deserve justice and, and judgment. But the righteousness of Christ is a gift to you and to me. It's called grace. And all we can do is accept it by faith. And friends, this is why there is hope for even the worst of sinners. This is why, for example, the thief next to Jesus on the cross with a resume that was chock full of, of sin and crime, was able to be saved moments before he died because we are not saved on the basis of our human goodness or lack of it. The thief did the only thing that's required. He changed his mind about Jesus. He changed the li his mind about the life he had lived, which is called repentance. He humbled himself, and he turned to Jesus, and he said, would you remember me? And what he meant by that is, would you do for me what I can't do for myself? And you see, that's what all of us have to come to at some point. Jesus, would you do for me what I can't do for myself? Now again, when we, we read this story about the thief on the cross or a murderer who embraces Christ in prison, it bothers some of us, doesn't it? I mean, you see, we, we compare our relatively good moral track record of 9.7. I mean, look at all the good things we're doing, how good we are. We're 9.7. And we compare that with the criminal who was next to Jesus, and we may conclude that God's grace is totally unfair and unjust. And it is. It is unfair. But you see, we learned in Romans chapter 9 that our sovereign God has the right to be outrageously gracious to whoever he wants to be. He has promised to save whoever, 
whoever will genuinely put their trust in him. Look at verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for who? For who? Everyone who believes. Notice it does not say to everyone who is elect or to everyone who is predestined in advance to be saved. No, it says to everyone who believes. Verse 11 adds this, saying anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. They will never regret trusting Jesus rather than themselves for their salvation. And then he goes on to say, for there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Salvation is for everyone. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone means everyone. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, to call on the name of the Lord means recognizing your inability to save yourself and crying out to God for salvation. In verse 9 and 10, Paul describes what trusting in Christ in a genuine way really involves. He writes this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul says putting your trust in Christ involves two things. First, it involves declaring Jesus is Lord. Now, you know, we read this and we find ourselves saying, well, are you telling me that the phrase Jesus Lord is some mystical power that all you need to do is declare Jesus Lord and you're saved? Not at all. Let me give you a bit of history here, a little background. You see, in the first century, as Christianity was growing rapidly, the lives of Christians were often threatened by those who opposed Christianity. And those in authority, they figured out a way to make it illegal to be a Christian. And here's what they did. They reasoned that you couldn't call Caesar as Lord and Jesus as Lord at the same time. You had to choose. And so a person accused of being a Christian, he would be hauled before a judge and asked to declare either that Caesar is Lord because remember, Caesar saw himself as God, or to declare Jesus is Lord. If the person declared Caesar is Lord, they were immediately released. Sorry to have bothered you, you may go. But if they declared Jesus is Lord, they were given one more opportunity to say Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't, the guards would take them away to be executed as a condemned criminal. There was no appeal process and there was no quick, uh, quick merciful death. No, those who declared Jesus is Lord knew that they would face a torturous death. Some were covered in tar. They were strung up on a tall pole and they were set on fire to light up a courtyard. Others had animal skins literally sewn on their bodies and then sent into arenas to face wild animals. And the list could go on. All to say, in that day when a Christian declared, Jesus is Lord, and God. They didn't say so flippantly. Those three words came, a heart, came from a heart of conviction. And the person was declaring, I surrender my life. I surrender all to Jesus. All to him, I surrender. 
And so first of all, putting your trust in Jesus means declaring Jesus is Lord in the same way the early Christians did with conviction and a willingness to surrender your whole life to Jesus Christ. The second is closely connected to the first. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, there is just absolutely no way that a Christian in that day would have declared that Jesus is Lord and God if he didn't believe in his heart that Jesus lives and that Jesus is God. There's no way, given the consequences of being a Christ follower that day. You see, given the right setting these days, some people will say, well, well sure, I'm a Christian. Sure, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But they don't believe it in their heart. To declare to be a Christian without truly believing in your heart is not enough. Titus 1.16 puts it this way. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. To believe in your heart means you've come to a place where first of all you say to yourself, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God and I don't have a solution for that. I need Jesus to save me by his righteousness. It is to say I believe that because Jesus rose from the grave, he can be trusted to save me and he has the right to be the Lord and king of my life. It means that you now trust in and you cling to Jesus as your Lord and you commit to following him with all of your heart. And so putting your faith in Jesus means you do not just declare Jesus is Lord, but that you genuinely believe in your heart and live like he is your Lord and king. On the other hand, to believe in your heart without declaring he is your Lord and King is to miss the mark too. This is the other side of the coin, folks. Verse 10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In other words... Putting your trust in Jesus means your belief in him is so deep that you're willing to be open with others about your faith in him. And I know that requires a level of boldness. If you've ever taken a value clarification course, you know that a value isn't a value until you're prepared to tell someone or admit it to someone that it's a value in your life. That's one of the powerful things about baptism. Baptism is saying to the world, I'm not ashamed of Christ. I'm committed to following him no matter what. Now in verse 14, Paul says, verbalizing our faith is not only a strong indicator that we are followers of Christ, but it is absolutely necessary in reaching those who continue to be lost. He writes, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now when Paul talks about preaching here, he's not referring to the preachers, the pastors, the evangelists, or even the missionaries. He's not saying, well, you bring people to church and the pastor will preach to them. Now, don't misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with inviting people to come along with you to church. In fact, over the last 30 plus years, we've seen hundreds upon hundreds of people who have been introduced to Jesus this way. It's just not the point that Paul's making here. He's saying, 
anyone who shares the good news with someone is a preacher or a proclaimer. And you thought you could never be a preacher. Well, there you go. Anytime you say a word about Christ, anytime you share a bit of your story of how Christ changed your life with someone who doesn't know Christ, you're preaching to them in the manner in which Paul's talking about here. See, God uses his people to reach his spiritually lost kids. And if you think about it, all of us who know Christ came to Christ because of someone one way or another. Even if a book impacted you to embrace Christ, someone wrote that book. Paul writes, how can they hear the truth unless someone is sent? Well, who is sent? The fact is, we, we all are. If you're a Christian, you're sent. When you leave this worship center, you're entering the mission field, not just outside the walls of this building. You're entering the mission field right out there in the atrium. If you're not in a rush to leave, and we recognize at times people are, but if you're not in a rush to leave and you ask God to direct you, you may not only meet someone who needs a listening ear and an encouraging word, but you may actually meet someone who does not know Jesus personally right here within the confines of this building. We are his witnesses wherever it is we go. There are people at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your family, who do not have a personal relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> now to be clear, it's not your responsibility or mine to convert anyone. That is God's work. Only God can change a person's heart. Our responsibility is to go to God to ask him to do our day with us and to show us in whom he is working and then to follow his leading. And as we do this, our faith and our friendship with God will go to another level of intimacy and trust. I also want to remind you that when Jesus said, go and make disciples, he wasn't communicating that to each of us. He was communicating that to all of us as the church. And I point that out to say that he never intended us to do this all by ourselves. He wants us to be on mission together. To link arms with at least a few others of like mind and to use the gifts that he's given to us to be a link in the chain of events that ultimately results in a person being introduced to Jesus. Some of us will cultivate the soil, so to speak, break down the barriers. Others of us will water the plant, as it were. And of course, others will reap the harvest. Being a witness for Jesus means inviting Holy Spirit to live the life of Jesus through you and being prepared to share how Jesus has impacted your life and the hope that you have within you. It means loving people. It means serving people. It means inviting people to come and see. It means giving people a book or an article or a link to a sermon and saying, you know, I'm not fully able to answer the question you've just asked, but here, read this or listen to this or Come to this with me. Imagine the impact all of us could have if each of us was to begin praying for someone in our sphere of influence and was to begin to spend time with them and serve them and care for them and then at that God-ordained moment share our story with them and invite them to, to be part of our spiritual family. I mean, aren't you glad that somebody told you about Jesus? I mean, aren't you glad that, that the person who introduced you to Jesus didn't allow a fear of rejection or feelings of inadequacy or just stuff that gets us off target in this life 
caused them to shrink back from obeying the assignments that God gave them, but instead said one day, Lord, I acknowledge I have all of these fears. Lord, I have these feelings of inadequacy. I have this fear of rejection, but here I am. My hands are open to you. Please use me in whatever way you can to love someone to Jesus. And because they trusted the Lord, cared about us, and they shared with us at an appropriate time and invited us to come and meet Jesus, our spiritual life and our eternal destiny is forever changed and we are now part of God's family. I mean, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for those who allowed God to use them to help change the entire trajectory of your life and your eternity. You know, I'm so grateful to God for his amazing grace and for the people that he brought into my life who introduced me to Jesus. It changed my life completely, and that is one of the reasons I've devoted my entire life to introducing others to Jesus and to helping them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. I can't think of a greater cause to give my life to. I really can't. And I hope and pray that you will refuse to spend your life primarily investing in the temporary things of this world that will disappoint you and will fail you and will not last. And instead you will link arms with a small group of like-minded others and give your life away in love for others, investing in that which will outlast you and will never fade. May it be so for the sake of a lost world that so desperately needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? Just take a moment right now and, and ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Before we close, I want to take a moment to talk to those of you who have yet to put your trust in Jesus as Lord. Perhaps you've been coming to church for years. You've listened, you've, you've pondered, and you've tried to live a good life, and perhaps you've even shed some tears. But like the Israelites, you just, you just haven't submitted your life to the Lord I don't know if I can make it any clearer than through the teaching of Romans 10 and that is the only way for you to be saved in the way that we've talked about is by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the way to eternal life. If you reject him, you will remain eternally lost. John 3.36 says it very bluntly and matter-of-factly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And you see, this is the truth. It's not a pleasant truth, but it is the truth. 
But we also need to understand that God doesn't want anyone to be eternally lost. He wants everyone to be saved. That's his heart. I love what we read in the last verse of Romans 10. We get a picture of the heart of God for people who are far from him. It says this, all day long, all day long I have held out my hands to you. Every moment of every day, God's hands are extended out to you, calling you back to himself. So I ask you, as I have countless times down through the years, how will you respond? Friend, if you're not sure where you stand with God or where you'll be moments after you die, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me right now in your heart. Just pray this with me. Lord Jesus, there is so much about you I don't understand. But I am so grateful that you died for me and that you made a way through Jesus for me to become your friend. Please forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me as you promised from all unrighteousness. Come into my life. Make me the person you created me to be. For I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, and you meant it, the Bible says, because of that act of faith, the Holy Spirit has invaded your life, and you are now spiritually alive. In the spiritual realm, you are God's child. You're a new creation. All of the sins and regrets of your past are washed away. The new has come. As Paul says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. We're going to close by reminding ourselves of the amazing grace of God. Do you know why we sing? We sing to declare our faith in him. But we also sing to remind ourselves of our faith in him. So let's stand right now. Join together in giving praise and thanks to our Lord for his amazing grace.